My name's Ross, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And um, if you're visiting, I'll add my welcome to Todd's. We're glad you're here. I hope you'll let us know that you are here. We'd love to say hello this week and just uh, thank you for coming. And we trust uh, that you're not here by accident this morning, that whatever the Lord has for you, you will, you will intersect with. And so we're, uh, we're glad about that and celebrate that, as a matter of fact. If, if you've got your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount this summer, uh, kind of the summer on the Mount that we're spending with Jesus. And we're going to look at uh, three sections that all go together this morning in chapter 6. And while you're turning there, I'll remind you next week, uh, June the 20th, we're going to have a congregational vote where we, as uh, the members of Bethel Bible Church, uh, will vote on one of the things that we vote on here at, at Bethel, and that is the acquisition of property. And so we're voting on the purchase of the Hope uh, Campus building, the building that the Hope Campus has been meeting in. We have an opportunity to purchase that, and we've put those details out. And if for some reason you've missed all those details and want to know, feel free uh, to email me or, or send your questions this week. We're going to be purchasing the property uh, for $1.5 million. Uh, we'll finance $1.2 million, and there's some context to that. And so uh, reach out to me if you've got questions about that, ross at bethelbible.com. All right. Um, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus, he's on the mountain. He's teaching his disciples. As he's teaching his disciples, a crowd gathers. And last week, <clears throat> we looked at Jesus talking about um, saying, listen, you, you need to have a righteousness. There's a, a kind of righteousness that you need for the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there's a kind of righteousness you need to live forever with God in God's presence. And that righteousness, despite um, all appearances, is a righteousness that's different from and greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And as you look out, I know what you think is that those are the holiest people that we know, that those are the people that must be right with God because of the, of the ways they act and the things that they do. They're pious. And what Jesus is trying to say is that their righteousness is really, it, it represents kind of the best that man can do but mankind, men and women, need more than the best that they can do. They need a righteousness, not that they can find on earth. They need a righteousness that comes from heaven. And Jesus is proclaiming, and Matthew's telling the story that Jesus is the righteousness that we need. And, and it's not about how good we do something. It is whether we believe that Jesus is that righteousness? Do we believe it for ourselves? Do we believe He is the, the solution? He is the salvation that God sent to take our place, to satisfy our guilt, to fulfill all the requirements that we need? And do we believe Him? And so that is um, how the discussion began. And then Jesus is going to move into, here in chapter 6, he's going to talk about three things that kingdom people do. 
three ways in which our relationship is reflected with the God who created us. Some people call these spiritual disciplines. Some people call these the practices of faith. And while Jesus only lists three, there are several we could make a case for. These are the disciplines or the practices of people who are believers. And and what he's going to say about him, he's going to be contrasting these three things, giving, praying, and fasting, with how they shouldn't be done. You you ever heard um, the expression, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory? It's It's an expression to speak of when you are winning, Somehow you have, uh, you know, a win that's in the bag. You're guaranteed a win. But somehow you have ended up losing that which you were supposed to win. The worldwide sports is filled with heartbreaking, mind-boggling examples of that. In 2017, Super Bowl 51, it only took 17 minutes for the Atlanta Falcons to go from heroes to zeros. They had a 25-point lead against Satan's team, the New England Patriots. <laughs> well, there's a, that's it. This is what it looked like. The end of the third quarter, two minutes left in the third quarter. New England only has three. Atlanta has 28. Really, all the good people of the world were celebrating this. It looked like we had this deal in the bag, and I don't even care about the Atlanta Falcons. The celebrations had begun. The Falcons, they totally dominated the first 43 minutes of regulation play, and it was all but over until it wasn't. And for the next months, really for a whole year, sports writers, they mused at trying to figure out how in the world this team that had all the momentum and all the points and all the talent could end up losing this game. And the bottom line is the Falcons assumed that they had already won 17 minutes before the final whistle blew. This was the, uh, the final, ended up being the final score. Um, one more. No, that wasn't it. The next one is... Well, New England won. Uh, <laughs> At the end of the deal, it was New England that was, that was, the, uh, that was the winner, not, uh, I don't know, I, I messed it up when I gave it to Todd, I guess. But that's what Jesus, he, he doesn't want us, listen, as we think about our relationship with God, and the ways that we give, and the ways that we pray, and the ways that we fast, that, that we wouldn't come to the end of that and, and ruin the whole deal. We, we wouldn't turn what is a victory of spiritual discipline and then into a defeat of what Jesus is going to call hypocrisy. Now, let me give you the three sections. In verses 1 through 4, he is going to assume that as believers, as kingdom people, that we're people who give. In the next section, verses 5 through 15, he's going to assume about us that we are people who pray. 
And in the last section, 16 through 18, he's going to assume that we are people who fast. And there are three words that tie all these three sections together. In verses 2 and 5 and 16, you find the word hypocrite. It's the word um, that was used to describe actors. And And it's this word picture, if you will. These are people who live as though the church was a stage. And money is a prop, or prayer is a prop, or fasting is a prop. And then when you give, or when you pray, or when you fast, it's all pretense. And the goal is to impress other people. The church becomes a stage in which you play out some version of Christianity. It's it's when you give and pray and fast in such a way so as to draw attention to yourself. You are an actor. Or, as Jesus says, a hypocrite. Now, we have in our day um, more disposal by which to be hypocrites than any people in all of history before us. And that um, is afforded us by uh, social media and the internet. That, that we so often, you know, social media becomes our stage at which we're acting out our Christianity, and we must be so careful to hear what Jesus has to say about that this morning. Well, the second word that ties the three sections together is the word secret. You find it in verse 4, it's in verse 6, it's in verse 16. And what he's going to say is don't be an actor, don't be a hypocrite, don't, don't do what you're doing as though you're on a stage trying to impress other people. You're not doing this for the acknowledgement and esteem for other people. He encourages us that we would know, we would do these things, we would do them in secret. You might say it this way. What Jesus is saying, we need to have secrets that if they were found out, they would create a deeper respect for who you are rather than the kind of secrets that if found out, they would destroy your reputation. Something so compelling. So, so, you know, it, it, here's what you know that you, where, where a secret would come in is that when you do something and you feel so compelled man, I really wish other people knew about this, but then you choose to restrain from telling others. It's humility that comes in. Humility is the fuel for these secrets. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The third of the words is reward. You have hypocrisy, you have secret, then you have reward. Reward shows up several times. It's in verse 2 and 4 in the first section. It's in verses 5 and 6 in the second section, and then verses 16 and 18 in the last section. And it's when we, you know, when we feel like something costs us something, 
So when we do something, we feel like, man, this, this is costing me something. We want it to be worth it, don't we? And the temptation is to settle for something of lesser worth. And, and in, you know, in doing that, we snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Let me give you a couple of examples. Instead of using money to upgrade your lifestyle, maybe you give it away. And, and that costs you something. Because the people around you, your peers, maybe your friends, they're upgrading their lifestyle, and, lifestyle, and you've decided you're not going to do that. And the temptation is to kind of leak your sacrifice to the press, so to speak. And, and the victory of your battle in the area of stewardship, because you win that victory. You've been a good steward. But that gets offset by the defeat in your battle for a little glory. See, I think that's the way the enemy does it. Yeah, you've wrestled with stewardship. You've become convicted. You know, oh, maybe I'd, this money isn't mine. It's all God's money. I'm going to do something with it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to meet my needs. I'm going to take care of our family. But, but we're going to make a decision not to, not to upgrade this or and we're going we're gonna to give that away. We're going to invest that somewhere else, some way else. So you won the battle. You, there's a victory here in the stewardship category. But then as time goes on, you, nobody knows, and you didn't get the props for it, and everybody around you has upgraded their lifestyle and have all these fun things. And, and, and then your battle now is this battle for glory, this battle for pride, wanting people to know what you did. You can have this victory in the battle of your priorities. You know, maybe you got out of bed early to pray or to read God's Word. And you went to bed early, you set your alarm, you got up when your alarm went off, you won this battle only to be offset later in the day when you decide to give yourself a little props about the battle that you won, you've lost the battle of pride. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus is saying. There are battles you'll win in each of these areas. He doesn't want them offset by this greater loss in a different battle. A victory over your flesh can be quickly diminished by the defeat of fishing for a little praise. This is what Jesus is addressing. Now look at how he does it. Look at the first four verses with me in verses 1 through 4. Beware, he says in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus... When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret 
will reward you. In some ways, Jesus is saying, okay, listen, when you give, this is the way. I mean, very Mandalorian of him, all right? It describes the way kingdom people do things. And the motive here is what matters. It's the motive. Not whether the acts are public or private. I want to be careful that I distinguish this. He's not… Public and private is is not the issue. What's the issue is the motive that is down in your heart. This applies to all three of the examples. For instance, if you went back to chapter 5, verse 16, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said this, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And you may think, well, wait a minute, Jesus is saying two entirely different things. Well, he is if you think he's talking about the issue of public and private. What he's talking about is what is the motive of your heart? Who, when you do this, is the glory for? Whose glory are you pointing to? to. To have someone notice your giving or your praying or your fasting, that's different than your giving or praying or fasting being noticed. If you're doing it for it to be noticed, wrong. It's a test of our hearts. Listen, Jesus isn't just simply regulating our behavior. This whole Sermon on the Mount is after our heart. It doesn't matter how much you give to the building fund or you show up for prayer or you serve in the children's ministry or you fast or whatever it is you do. If you're doing that for the praise of men, that's the wrong reason. And he says, you'll get nothing back from God. And very little reason to do those things if you're doing them for the wrong reason. Remember Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, whether you give or pray or fast or, or, or play on the weekends or work hard in the whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So when you give, how you give, and you're saying in our giving we can't be like the hypocrites, we can't sound the horn, whether it's literally or figuratively. In the first century, what he's referring to likely is that there's a trumpet that used to sound. It would sound for a time of fasting or sound for a time when you needed to, you know, people would come and they would give and there would be metal coffers and you'd you'd put it in and it would make a clanging sound. I mean, literally, that's what he's talking about. Figuratively, he'd be talking about tooting your own horn. Spurgeon said, to stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other is the posture of hypocrisy. We're not to be like the hypocrites who give for the reason of receiving human praise. So why do you give? You know, why do you, why do you give? Why do you give to Bethel? Why do you give elsewhere? Well, I'll point you to a resource. Um, Randy Alcorn has written several great things about this. One of those is a treasure principle. And he says, listen, behind giving, as we think about giving, as we think about the cost, as we think about the sacrifice, we give because we understand everything we have is God's. Everything belongs to Him. He goes to the parable of the sower. 
And not only that, not only does it all belong to him, but, but we understand we'll be accountable for what we have, the, the stewardship, the, the, the accountable for how we spent what it is that God brought to us. Jesus will go on in this very next passage, and, and uh, we'll look at next week, that we're to amass a treasure in heaven, and you know, the idea you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And it's how you send it ahead. It's to use God's wealth for God's purposes. We give because it's one of the few tangible ways, physical ways. We can show that, that we love God, that we care about His purposes, that we're aligning ourselves with what He's doing. Our words are cheap. We give because there's a biblical pattern established. It starts in the beginning of the Bible and goes all the way to the end. You see, here's, here's what you need to see. Jesus sees this as a normal part of a believer's life. It's not exceptional, not occasional, but when you give. And when you do, the victory of your stewardship comes with having settled in your heart the motive, the impulse behind giving, that you've thought about it, that, that this is something you're doing between you and God. Well, the next section, he begins, look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. We'll stop right there before we actually get into what we know as the Lord's Prayer, or maybe better, the disciples' prayer. But he's talking about sort of three motives behind praying. One, in verse 5, that we would, we would pray sincerely, you know, not as hypocrites. He wants us to be sincere because here, here's what Jesus knows. The evaluation of others it will rob us from the joy of communicating with our Father. The, the evaluation of others, when we're thinking, I wonder what others think about this prayer that I'm praying. It happens to all of us. I, I remember, listen, my very first day at Dallas Theological Seminary, I've probably told, told you this, some of you probably heard this before. But it was an orientation day, and it was Leslie and I, and we were there, and we were there with about four or five other couples, and we were assigned a professor. I'll never forget the professor, Dr. Gordon Johnston. Ended up being a professor that I 
had a great affection for, but it took about three years for that to change after my first encounter with him. But we were praying in a circle, and, and um, man, I mean, every one of us was nervous, every one of us, probably except for Chris Lewis. Chris Lewis, was, he wasn't nervous. He had that deal in the bag, and so he went first. He just jumped right out there and just, just prayed to the Lord, man. I mean, it was, it was worthy of Dallas Theological Seminary is all I can say, and I found myself very intimidated right off the bat. Well, then it went, and finally, I'm the last one to pray before Dr. Johnson's going to pray, and I'm realizing what, you know, all, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just consumed uh, with the evaluation of others, consumed with what words I'm going to say. And so, man, I prayed as um, holy and theologically correct a prayer as I could possibly muster. And I said something like, you know, Lord, would you... Uh, would you protect us? Would you, would you keep all the, the bad things away from us or something like that? I mean, I was talking, you know, I'd, essentially I was saying, you know, protect us during all, all of this. And, and so, uh, you know, keep, keep the enemy away from us, you know, because we're here to do important Lord stuff, you know, important God stuff. And I remember as soon as I uh, turned it over, and I didn't say amen because I wasn't the last to pray, and I was always thinking, am I supposed to say in Jesus' name amen? No, I guess I just ha- let it leave that hanging, let the last person do it. I mean, you know, all those things go through your mind. And the first words out of Gordon Johnston's mouth in his prayer, the professor, Lord, it's not protection that they need. It's your presence you're persevered, and it's like this. It's like my prayer was going up, and then his prayer went up and ate my prayer <laughs> on the way to heaven. And I figure, man, if, this, if the professor at Dallas Seminary canceled out your prayer, your prayer's no good. It didn't even make it up there. <laughs> Here's what I came away with. I, you know what, didn't matter what I prayed, didn't matter what he prayed. There was a sincerity in that moment that in that day and that time, sitting next to my wife with all these other guys that ended up becoming great friends, we just had an opportunity to talk to the Lord. Dr. Johnson wasn't trying to cancel out my prayer, and we were just praying. We most of us all miss the sincerity of it. You know, we can pray like junior high kids who are more concerned about what our friends think and miss the intimacy with our Father because we're too worried about the acceptance of our friends. So intimacy, it creates security. So we want intimacy. And that's a challenge. So listen again. Jesus is not contrasting public prayer and private prayer. There are there are perfect times for private prayer where you, you're with others and you, and you pray out, out loud and, and, and your voice is heard. And, and, and yet, that, that can only really be as honest as it can be in that setting when we've spent time secretly in prayer, communing with our Father. Maybe the, like Hannah and First Samuel, the words, you know, her mouth was moved, but there were no words coming out of her mouth. She was praying from her heart. 
pouring her heart out. That's what he means by secretly. Certainly not only secret or never public. Secret or private prayer. It's the source of public prayer. Secret prayer, this is what you're doing. You're nurturing, verse 6, the intimacy with your Father. In public prayer, we end up nurturing the faith of fellow believers. Both are important. In verse 7, there's this honesty that he's talking about. Not heaping up empty phrases. And by the way, I was thinking about this. Where Jesus says here in verse 7, don't heap up empty phrases. It is so insidious of our enemy that the Lord's prayer, after 2,000 years, can sometimes become empty phrases for us, right? But don't, it's not empty phrases. It's not saying what you think another person wants to hear. That's what it means. You're not saying what you think God wants to hear. That's not how we're to pray. Praise, prayer's not a performance. It's not an audition. It's not about how many words. It's about true words. And if you want to know how to pray, I think, you know, listen, the Psalms is a great place. The Psalms, they free us from all our pretentiousness, help us to embrace our dependency and our desperation when we go in prayer. Psalm 13, it, it starts this way, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Have you ever prayed that prayer? How long will you hide your face from me? So I know you felt that way. Have you ever prayed that way? So honestly, Psalm 13, though, it ends, I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. There, it takes David six verses to get to be able to see. He starts here with one thing he sees. Lord, I, I, it feels like, it seems like, the way I, I view it when I look out is that you've forgotten me. And it only takes six verses in Psalm 13 to him to get to a place where he sees what's real. Oh, oh, that's the way I felt, but I know that's not real. And six verses later, he's able to say, I'll sing to you because in all truth, what I see is you've dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 73, it takes 28 verses to get there. See, honesty in prayer gives way to being able to see what is really true, what is really real. So we should be honest, not heap up phrases, not pray what we think God wants to hear, but we pray our heart, and we allow the Spirit to move us from sometimes how we feel to being able to see what's real. Well, verse 8, uh, relationally. It's going to your Father who already knows. Which makes you think, well, wait a minute. If He already knows, what in the world am I having to go to pray for? I mean, listen, He knows the big events. He knows the small moments of each of our lives, and nothing's beyond His control. It's a mistake. So we shouldn't think of prayer as is a way that we're going to change God's mind or alter His direction in the situation. Although we can certainly pray that way. We can be tempted, though, 
to go to God like a hostage negotiator who's, you know, we're trying to figure out how, how much ransom he needs in exchange for the things that we want. You know, like he's holding what we want hostage. And we want to, okay, how much, okay. That's what I really, how much do you want me to do? How many promises do I need to make? How much do you want me to do? I mean, it, so we begin this negotiation. But really, when we go in prayer, it's, he's a father who, who we trust, loves us, and is for us, and is good. You, you can write down, I don't have time. I wish I did have time. I don't have time. Go to, you know, you, you could look at Hebrews 5. Look, look at the end of Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. And you see, it blows my mind. It's a picture. The writer of Hebrews gives us a picture of Jesus' prayer life. Jesus. The eternal Son of God. Praying. To God. Is God talking to God. We find out prayer is the yearning of our soul to God. Now, in verses 9 through 15, I want to read this, but I want you to hear this is not a script for prayer, uh, but maybe more of a, of a pattern of prayer. In in Luke 11, Jesus gives a version of this, and it's, and it's in response to the disciples saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus, instead of giving them a script to praise, really, he's giving them a pattern. Okay, let me show you the, the pattern of how to pray. Here's how it goes, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then depending on what version you have, yours might have, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And then verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, let's just look at this really quick. I, I said this is not a script. It, it's, a, it's a pattern. What follows is, is this isn't a special prayer language, Okay? Just because, I mean, listen to my grandmother. I loved to listen to my grandmother pray. I loved it because it, she was truly, sincerely honest prayer. But she also prayed in the King James, you know? I mean, she didn't talk in the King James except to God. I think she was convinced that was his language. Thou and thee and couldst and shouldst. I don't even know. What is shouldst? What is that? There's an elder in the church I grew up in, and he would stand at communion, and the way they had the men line up, and the one man at the front, and the one man here, and H. Don Rogers was always there. He was always on this side, and always the second to go, and every week he prayed, 
that we would redound to the glory of God. And I had no idea what redound meant for like 15 years. I'm like, I mean, that redound thing. I hope that happened. Don't know what it is, but I hope it happened. But he meant it. It's what hallowed means. Don't let it intimidate you. It means, God, we want your name to be big. We want you to get the credit in everything. And speaking of God's name there in verse 9, our Father. Jesus says we address God as Father. That's who He is. And where He is is in heaven. He's different than any earthly father we've ever known. And how can it be? How can we pray to the one in heaven who is the creator and the sovereign and seated above all creation and above all time and above all space. How can it be that prayer we find from the New Testament, it, is it that, that it brings us into the presence of God? And according to Jesus, it's not like we come into his presence like a, like a waiter would at the state dinner, you know? I mean, we're, where we're there, we're, we're, we're just serving, but we're... To, you know, we're to be as unnoticeable as possible. You know, we're a maid at the Buckingham Palace. No, Jesus, he's granted us access to God as our Father because Jesus is there, seated at his right hand as our Savior and our advocate and high priest and brother. And he's given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us and prays with us and for us and intercedes and illuminates and comforts us. We find out from the New Testament, actually we find out from the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is crazy. When you pray, God sees your prayer as, as a treasure. Your prayers are God's treasures. And I would say that's a blasphemous thing to say if the Bible didn't make it so clear. God keeps your prayers. You say, well, wait a minute. I don't even know if God hears me. I don't even know because it doesn't seem like he answers any of them. I promise you he's answering all of them. And he's keeping every one of them. Our Father hangs on to them. He doesn't forget them. In fact, he's saving them for this very special moment. You find it in Psalm 141. You can read about it there. You go to Revelation chapter 5 and in Revelation chapter 8, and you find there's this bowl that God has kept all our prayers in, and it becomes the incense of heaven, the very aroma of heaven the prayers of the saints. And he brings it out just before the end. Just before the seals are broken. As the Lamb who's worthy has taken the scroll. And it's at that point everything you, you've prayed that didn't, didn't turn out like you thought it would. It's where everything begins to be redeemed. And those prayers are then poured out before God. Well, he's your father. 
who hasn't missed a word that you've said. And you pray for his kingdom. To say that is to say that you're aligning your will with God's will, and there's no other way around. I'm tempted to think my kingdom is what's at stake when I'm most desperate and I go to my knees. God, could you fix this? Everything in my life seems to be unraveling. Can you, can you fix this? And I'm actually, when I'm doing that, if I'm not careful, I'm praying about my kingdom, that my kingdom's at stake. Jesus says, okay, here's what we do. Pray to our Father by His name for His kingdom and for His will, and then we move to our, our food, to forgiveness, to our security and our protection. Praying for God's kingdom, it realigns me to what I was created for all along. Then God's will in, in the second half of verse 10, that your will be done. Jesus prayed this in the garden. Father, if there's any other way. And then he says, not my will, but your will. We pray for God's will above our will. We pray for God's will to become our will. We pray for that, and it transforms us. It transforms our hearts. Listen, that's... It's the place in prayer is we pray for God's will that has a transforming effect on our marriages and our families and our church. God, for your will. And we need to be reminded to pray for this because we forget it. Well, he moves from God's name and God's kingdom and God's will to now he brings us down to earth and to our our everyday needs, our very practical needs, and our needs for, for food. You know, the anxiety for our daily provision. Which begs the question, where will you go for bread? See, it confronts us with this reality. It's this statement of full dependence upon God for the basic needs of our life. And, and what we're saying when we say it is that we're dependent upon God for all things. And I know, listen, that's hard for us to relate. Somebody in the first century, they might or might not have known where their meal was going to come from. See, we, we tend to have a certain amount of things in, in hand, Right? When we want God, if we want Him to handle the bigger stuff, we'll take care of all the little stuff. Which kind of means we don't want Him to meddle into our stuff. We just want Him to take care of the stuff we can't take care of. And when we pray for our daily bread, it reminds us, no, we're dependent upon God for everything. There's not my stuff and His stuff. It's all His stuff. I'm dependent upon Him for all these things. Look at verse 12 for forgiveness. We have guilt, so we pray for the forgiveness of sins. It's the prayer for a believer. It's the prayer of a child to the Father. It's a prayer of one who is eternally forgiven by God, seeking the temporal forgiveness that disrupts relationship. And forgiving others frees our conscience 
forgiving others is a great benefit to the whole congregation of believers. Probably few, fewer things have sure, so short-circuited the power of the church than the conflicts that go unresolved in its midst. In the matter of forgiveness, God deals with us as we deal with others. I want to talk about that in a minute because that's the great warning there at the end. But look at the next verse, verse 13, security. We have weakness, so we pray for protection. See, I want to say, Dr. Johnson, I was right. Let's not fall victim to the temptations of the evil one. Rescue us. Satan's goal is in every way to diminish the glory of God in our lives, the image of the glory of God. He seeks to ruin you. He hates you. And so we pray. We pray that we would not fall. We know that we can't fall away as believers, but we pray that we might not fall in a moment, in a moment. Jesus is our high priest. Would you keep us safe? Would you protect us with your power? Well, the doxology that's not there in most of our translations, but if you've got the King James or the New American Standard, it is, but you've got a footnote that tells you it probably wasn't a part of the original text, and that's okay. Where did it come from? Why is it important? Well, as C.S. Lewis said, the more we praise something, the more beautiful it becomes to us. See, the hypocrite's attitude of glorifying yourself stands in stark contrast to the attitude of glorifying God expressed in a doxology. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Where the early church got that was right from King David. Comes right out of one of David's prayers. Well, let me quickly give you how to understand verses 14 and 15. Look at it again. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Really, of all the things in the Sermon on the Mount, this is one thing I get a question most often about. It's something that I've seen lots of people. They made an appointment with me. They've come across it. They've come to talk to the pastor because they've, they wonder if they can truly be forgiven by God because they know how difficult it has been or is for them to forgive someone in their life. And so let me address this. One, I don't want us to miss the weight of what Jesus is warning because I'm, that would be to violate the text, and I don't want to violate the text. We should feel it. But I do want to, to explain the text so we understand. Here, here's what it cannot mean. It can't mean that I am saved because I have forgiven others. It cannot mean that. It cannot mean that the prerequisite to you being 
saved, have eternal salvation, is that you've forgiven others. It cannot mean that, or you have to throw out the rest of the New Testament. I think this, he's in this context of prayer to our Father, it is not a prayer for judicial or eternal forgiveness. That's not it. It's a prayer of parental forgiveness from a child to his father. He's warning, Jesus is warning that a believer with an unforgiving spirit that it's not that you lose your salvation, but you can seriously impede fellowship with God, your Father, as your Father. So this, isn't, this isn't the formula of how to be saved. It, it, however, is Jesus warning us to lose fellowship with the Father as a believer. We don't want to do that. We want to forgive as we've been forgiven. In the Greek, it literally means to let it, let it go. Let, give it to God. Let him have it. It doesn't mean that we deny that we've been sinned against. It doesn't diminish that. It doesn't mean that if man, you've been sinned against in such a way that you need to call the cops, call the cops. It doesn't mean that. It also doesn't mean reconciliation. Forgiveness takes one person. Reconciliation takes two. You can forgive somebody and sometimes not be reconciled to them. But what it is, it preserves us from being bitter. It helps us to remember to be more conscious of the wrongs that we have done than the wrongs that have been done to us, which we have that so backwards sometimes. Your capacity to extend forgiveness, to grant forgiveness, to, to forgive, actually reveals your capacity to receive forgiveness from God. The capacity you have to forgive correlates directly to your understanding of how you have been forgiven. It is how we were always meant to pray. Adam, in Genesis chapter 3, failed. He blamed. Jesus, the truer and greater Adam, on the cross, Father, forgive them, he prays. Well, when you fast, I don't have time to go into this. But let me give you a quote, and then I'll close. I may come back to it next, next week. It's a quote from John Piper, and I think it's helpful. Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. Half of Christian fasting is that our physical appetite is lost because of our homesickness for God is so intense. The other half of our, is that our homesickness for God is threatened because our physical appetites are so intense. In the first half, appetite is lost. In the second half, 
appetites resisted. He says sometimes we fast because our appetites lost. Despair, discouragement, grief, that'll do that to us. Sometimes we resist our appetite because we realize, oh, we are no longer homesick. In the first, we yield to the higher hunger that is. In the second, we fight for the higher hunger that isn't. Christian fasting is not only the spontaneous effect of seeking satisfaction in God, it is also a chosen weapon against every force in the world that would try to take that satisfaction away. I'll pick up there next week. few things. Realize all these things, giving, praying, fasting, they're things we need to learn, and we learn them by doing them, by immersion. We learn them by meditating upon Scripture. Psalm 19, verse 14 that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing. Sometimes we learn them by doing them with others. For instance, praying with others. We're drawn out in prayer with others in ways that we might not be when we're alone. Jesus prayed with his disciples. Paul prayed with the elders. We can do it about reading about them. Maybe you need to read up on giving. Brandy Alcorn has a great book there, reading on prayer or reading on fasting, but remembering this morning what you do, when you do, you do that for an audience of one who sees you in secret and will reward you. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would do what only you can do. Draw, draw us this morning. Draw us as men and women, believers in, in your Son, Jesus. Draw us with a homesickness for the kingdom that we have been born again into. Father, draw us with a desire to know you more intimately as Father. Father, draw us with humility to serve you and to love you and to act in ways that align with how, how you've made us as new creations. Father, to know victories in these areas of our lives without suffering the defeats of pride and seeking our own glory. With the Father, we would find our satisfaction in you. Help us to trust you. With all of these things, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.